Congressional Western Caucus podcast, a voice for rural America. I'm Chairman Dan Newhouse. It's great to have you with us today. For our episode uh, today, we're joined by two very special guests. First, my good friend and colleague, Western Caucus Vice Chairman, Mr. John Curtis, who represents, I believe it's the third congressional district of the great state of Utah. John, welcome. Thanks for joining. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you as always. Absolutely. We also have the pleasure of being able to welcome, I think it's Mr., but maybe Dr. Mr. Brian Steen, who, uh, who is now the executive director of, for the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water, and Air at Utah State University in Logan. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Good to have you. Uh, so thanks uh, for being here. We're going to talk about something that I would argue it affects the entire country, but certainly uh, the Western part of the United States and that is a huge issue and that's of of wildfires, catastrophic wildfires for sure are a big, big deal. According to the National Interagency Fire Center uh, in 2022, we have already seen an above average uh, uh, rate of wildfires. The acres burned across the country are setting records. We're all, and we're only, you know, this is just July. We're only halfway through the fire season. Currently, nine states are reporting large fires, including my own state of Washington. And I expect as we get um, into the warmer months of latter part of July, August, and into September, we're going to see that number get bigger. As members of the Congressional Western Caucus, you know, we advocate for active, local land management to help mitigate the risk of wildfires, which in turn helps protect critical habitat for the threatened and endangered species. It helps to support our rural communities, which is very important to all of us. And it helps ensure the viability of healthy and resilient landscapes for, for decades into the future. So before we dive into some of the challenges that we're facing, and I hope some of the solutions that we can identify that are happening on the ground. I, I want to hear from both of you a little bit about your backgrounds and why you think this is an important topic. So uh, let's start with Congressman Curtis. John, could, I can tell people that in addition to serving as one of my vice chairman of the Congressional Western Caucus, and thank you very much for your leadership there, you also lead the Conservative Climate Caucus. And, and serve as a co-chair of the Bipartisan Wildfire Caucus here in Congress. You know, two very important uh, uh, parts, of our, parts of our body. Could, could you explain for our listeners a little bit about your district perhaps and why land and forestry management is important and more about how, um, how your work on these respective caucuses supports your constituents' priorities, John? Okay, now you give me an hour to answer that question, right? Uh, 30 (laughs) seconds or less. There was a lot there. (laughs) Uh, Let me just briefly talk about the district first. The the new district, uh, after redistricting, is one of the largest in the country. I I spanned 400 miles. I was looking at uh, visiting the the north part of my district uh, yesterday, and to get there, the the, the quickest route is through Wyoming. 
um, to get to, to the part, that part of my district. And to get from that part down to the south part of my district, I actually go through Colorado. Uh, much of that is rural, um, and much of the rural is, uh, in, in, is high susceptibility to forest fires. And, uh, and, and not just uh, small forest fires, but forest fires that burn hundreds of thousands of acres and are very, very difficult to reach, are very difficult to, to deal with and uh, cause uh, great harm uh, in, in many ways. Uh, it, it, it endangers uh, homes that are built close to the forest line that much of my district is, uh, uh, would join up, butt up right against mountains. And so you'll see a lot of interface between uh, residential homes and the forest. Uh, but beyond that, it does great damage to the environment. Uh, I was in a helicopter ride uh, over my district a few days ago and, and saw, you know, forest fires from years past and how those are still large scars on the land. Those scars are, are, are detrimental in many ways uh, from, from issues like floods to uh, wildlife and things like that. And so this is a big deal in my district and uh, something that's very, very important to my constituents. Good, good. Well, thanks, John. And, and thanks for keeping that under an hour. Too. <laughs> uh, so, Brian, let's turn to you. And I, I brought this up just a little bit earlier. You're in a new role as of uh, the first of this month. So congratulations to you for that. Um, looking forward to hear a little bit about that. But also, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't also bring up your past service uh, at the Bureau of Land Management. And also, I believe this is true, that you... Uh, you served as executive director of the Utah Department of Natural Resources. So you've got quite a, quite a varied background. Could you tell our listeners a little bit of, more about that and maybe some of the goals that uh, are with this new institute at Utah State? Sure. Uh, thank you so much again for having me. It really is a pleasure. And uh, uh, yeah, this is a new institute that we have here. Um, but it's doing a lot of the same things that I've been doing for the last five years. Uh, for the last five years, I've been working both the Bureau of Land Management and the Department of Natural Resources here in the state of Utah. Uh, and as, as you well know, that we have tons of resource challenges, whether it be water and drought, uh, or whether it be uh, forests that have been um, ignored for way too long. Uh, and the whole intent behind what we're doing here is trying to align the brain power of a university uh, with the policy needs of, of state and federal government. Because oftentimes we have research that's been done that's not been explained uh, effectively. And, and other times we have research needs from the policymakers' point of view that are not being done either. And so connecting that and bridging it, I think, is, is the whole goal. The reason I took this job, I mean, I, I love the state of Utah. I love uh, working in, in the natural resources space. Uh, I am a recovering attorney. Uh, and also, uh, I do have a PhD in public policy from Indiana University with a focus on natural resources and environment. And 10 years ago, I was teaching here at Utah State. Took this turn of events where I ended up in, in public service for, uh, for 10 years and I'm now back trying to align those two sides of my uh, professional experience. But it's an important it's an important thing to do, and it's not always easy to have uh, academics talk to policymakers and have that be an effective conversation, as you well know. Uh, so uh, it, that's what we're trying to do here. Good, good. Sounds exciting, and sounds like you're well qualified for the position too. So, and I think um, 
a recovering attorney, I, I think that's a terminal disease, actually. So <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm working my hardest. I'm working my hardest. So, so um, I think I could say that both of, both of you know well that when we talk about wildfires, there's, there's a lot of different perspectives on what the solution should be to fire mitigation and prevention. But we also face an education issue with many of our fellow members of Congress. John certainly would agree with that. I think. Those of us that live in the Western United States, we know it very well that it's our responsibility to help our colleagues from around the country understand some of the challenges we face um, in our rural communities when it comes to public lands, forestry issues, because a lot of them really can't even imagine what it's like to be surrounded by mismanaged land. What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, but it truly is a responsibility of the federal government to, to get the, the necessary work done. Congressman Curtis, John, we've, we've talked about this a lot. Could you share with our listeners what some of the tools you're working on inside and outside of the wildfire caucus to address uh, uh, some of the threats of wildfires? Yeah, um, I should I should mention and probably should have done that with the, the first part of the introduction. Uh, one of the unique things about my district is that of my rural counties, uh, they are 90 percent. Get, get, get your arms around this. 90 percent federal lands. In some cases, as high as 92% of federal lands. So imagine for a moment, if you're a local elected official and you're trying to deal with a, a, a numerous host of issues, but let's just take forest fires because that's what we're talking about. And you don't have control over 98% of your land. Um, imagine the frustration of the local officials. And then particularly add to that when you can so easily see the mismanagement of that land. Now, this is not a knock on our federal agencies we work with in the state. We have a great relationship with them. They're tremendous people. They work hard, but they they uh, have so few resources and are limited by um, the, the inability of Congress to act. It's the host of reasons they're, they're not able to do as much as they would like. But it, it, it really complicates it in my district that so much of this is out of our control. By out of our control, I mean state and local county officials um, Brian's, uh, if, if, if you could see Brian on the podcast right now, he's not in his head because he's lived this as a state official. So everything from policies about, uh, okay, do we let this natural fire, a natural occurring fire burn um, and have a controlled burn um, to um, how do we manage the dead timber on the floor? Like much of the West, we have uh, beetle kill and tremendous uh, fuels on the forest floor. All of those decisions, local leaders feel like they'd like more control. So I think the first answer to your question is trying to be a better interface between local officials, state, county government officials, and the federal agencies that have responsibility for these lands. Once again, we have great people that we work with, but they're hamstrung sometimes by federal policies and, and by lack of resources themselves. And so trying to facilitate resources to those federal agencies trying to get an interface between those federal agencies and the uh, and the people on the ground and then dealing with quite frankly some some stereotypes from a environmental movement and I don't mean I mean there's 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 really good people we work with on the environmental movement and there's extremists and some of these extremists won't let us manage this land or or or, or 
uh, make it to be something it's not when we try to clear out this dead timber. So imagine uh, the, the frustration of, of somebody who um, has land abating these federal lands when the federal government's not taking care of the land, a forest fire starts, moves on to those private lands, destroys uh, residences and sometimes even life. And, and you can see we've got a, a, a quagmire um, and, and very, very frustrated people uh, on the ground in the state. And so mission number one is trying to coordinate that with the federal government and, and work more hand in hand on these decisions. Great, great, John. And, and you're right. I, I see Brian's response to some of the things you're saying. Brian, you've been a leader in the state on this and other natural resource issues working with local partners and implementing state policies to help with fire mitigation and recovery. I think, is this correct? You mentioned some of your counties are 90 plus percent uh, publicly owned. Overall, the state is at least 70 percent. It's about 66 percent overall. um, So, you know, collaboration of all the levels of government is essential. And that includes universities, I would guess, too. Is that right, Brian? So, can you tell Absolutely. us a little bit more, more about some of the things that um, you're engaged with to face some of these unique challenges and how you work with the federal, the local partners to prevent, I guess, the fires from starting to begin with, or, um, or, or at least keeping them from being turning into catastrophic fires? Yeah. And uh, how do you support communities uh, along the way, both before and after fires? So it's, it's an excellent question. Uh, going back to something that Congressman Curtis was saying, it's really interesting that we, we kind of have a tale of two countries. Uh, sometimes we, we have public land states that really have, they're, they're facing this existential threat on a day-to-day basis. And then the rest of the United States that really has very little understanding of what that kind of threat means. So. I mean, I get up in the morning and I look out my window and I have mountains uh, behind me that are uh, all publicly owned. A fire starts on that, that's gonna impact my watershed, that's gonna impact uh, my view shed, it's gonna impact my air shed, it's gonna impact uh, the things that, that we all love about this area. And I think it's something that oftentimes our friends uh, that don't live in those public land states don't really understand. Uh, and if you look at my previous work at the Bureau of Land Management, almost all BLM land is, is west of the Mississippi. Uh, and talking about what that means to those that don't understand what that federal estate is and the size and just the scale uh, is, is interesting. One of the things we try to do at the state level is try to educate. Uh, some of the counties and, and the state sponsored a congressional fly-in where we brought uh, targeted members uh, and staff, particularly from other parts of the nation, uh, two years ago, uh, we were on a tour, uh, and many of the staff from that area was from the east, and they wanted to hear about the urban wildland interface. And uh, we were driving through the middle of nowhere, Utah, and we had just had a big catastrophic fire in the area, and the stream, which used to be a, a pretty good trout stream, was running the color of chocolate milk. And it was interesting because we could point out and say, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with the wildland urban interface. This has to do with lifestyle. <laughs> that unfortunately this is gonna impact the watershed for this community for the foreseeable future and it was a real eye opener. So going back to the question of what we can do, uh, we have had over the time uh, that that we witnessed a change in management. There was a perception for a long time that the best thing we can do is is either A, have natural management or B, have no management at all, right? We're, We're gonna 
put aside these landscapes and we're going to make sure that they stay in as natural state as possible. What that's done is, is created a different state because all of, all of our Western landscapes are fire dependent to some degree. And so we have all this fuel buildup and understanding that now we need to have active management. We actually need to be proactive and go out and do something in order to make sure that we don't have these catastrophic burns is something that I think that we're getting our heads around. We, we understand this on a more intuitive level in the West, uh, but we also have to have the science to support how and when uh, we need to thin the forest. And whether that's through prescribed burns or whether that's through mechanical thinning, both can have really positive effects on, on forest health and reduce that risk of catastrophic burns. Something that all of us, I think, uh, have a real interest in preventing just because of those long-term environmental consequences that result as a re uh, after those, those burns happen. Uh, well, I hope, and I hope we're, we're winning the war that we're, we're, we're coming to conclusions that uh, we can agree at moving forward, would you say? Uh, absolutely. And, and interestingly, uh, there is pretty good science out there that shows that, that indeed uh, having active treatment prevents the more catastrophic effects of, of fire. Yeah. And if you look at uh, around the West, uh, historically, we had a lot of Native American burning that had a, a higher fire frequency than may nat naturally have occurred. We're trying to re reinstate that kind of practice to where we have that. But then in those areas where that doesn't make sense, we're going to have to mechanically thin that uh, and, and some, remove some of the ladder fuels that end up uh, burning the entirety of the forest rather than coming through and cleaning out the understory as what historically happened. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so in the time we have remaining, I wanted to uh, talk about one thing that I, I know we're all concerned with and passionate about, and that's the impact that wildfires have on the environment, that the damage that's done. You mentioned that trout stream to our watersheds and to our landscapes and the, the devastation to local communities. I know for, in my area that the severe impact to air quality is huge. Um, so let me let me ask both of you this. Uh, what can um, John, you're a member of Congress. Brian, you've been in, you've worked in Congress and you've looked also uh, from the outside working with Congress. I want to ask this question from both your perspectives. What can we specifically members of Congress do to better partner with states and local entities and community leaders, and everybody involved to aid and wildfire recovery and mitigate the impacts of these wildfires. I'll, I'll jump in on that, let, let Brian um, uh, contribute as well. Um, one of the things as a new member of Congress that I discovered is we have some holes in uh, our response as a federal government once a fire um, has occurred. Most people's paradigm is we get the fire out and then everything's okay. Well, if you're a local leader, you, you know that if, if you've got a city right at the base of a mountain and there was a, a serious fire up above you, your next worry is going to be debris flows um, coming down off that mountain. And I found out that we won't eat. So there are reimbursement plan, uh, programs uh, for the federal government to participate in some of that uh, mitigation. But I found out the federal government will not reimburse a dollar that, that's, that the local entity puts in to mitigating that until it's approved months later on a federal level. So think about this, you're, you're a local official, you have a fire up on federal lands, 
and it threatens to, you're threatened to have the, the flooding and debris flows down into your area and you spend the money to prevent that from happening and you're not reimbursed by the federal government because of a, a red tape thing that we have here. So we've got legislation in to change that, but those are the types of things that the federal government has to do a better job of understanding um, what local communities are dealing with. So one of the answers question, uh, Mr. Chairman, is there are specific legislative fixes that we need to be working on. And those of us who, who live in these areas really bear a big burden of educating our colleagues to get support uh, for these fixes. Um, I, I think another thing too is, um, so not just the mitigation after the fire, but as, as Brian's talked about, mitigation efforts to prevent the fire, we're, we're just not letting enough things happen there. One of the things that happened in, in my district is we used to allow uh, people to come in and harvest this wood and then we, we prevented that for a while. All the sawmills went out of business. Now we're opening that up again, but nobody's coming and claiming that wood because there's no sawmills uh, to take care of it. So the federal government's really messed that up. And, and we have to be really careful with these unintended consequences that we do things. And uh, much of the burden, as you've alluded to, is, is on our shoulders to educate our colleagues back east and, and other places of the country who don't understand the dynamics that we're dealing with. Yeah, great, great points, and I would agree wholeheartedly with you, John. Brian, and Congressman, if I if I if I can, I would add two more things from a from a front end side. There are programs out there that the federal government and states have partnered on. In Utah, we've been working for years on something called the Watershed Restoration Initiative, where we're going in and cleaning out uh, areas in order to have better forage uh, as well as uh, less fire risk. And so uh, that's always been an issue on Bureau of Land Management uh, to where we're actually improving the landscape. And more recently, the Shared Stewardship Program with the U.S. Forest Service to where we're putting in joint state resources and federal resources to go in and do those prescriptive uh, treatments so that we don't have those catastrophic burns. And we've actually seen some really positive results. Last year, we had a, um, a fire down in the southern part of the state, uh, and you can totally see uh, those areas that were treated versus untreated, the areas that were treated had a less severe burn and less um, mitigation after the fact necessary simply because it was prepared for that for that landscape. And then to, to, part, uh, to pair it on to what um, Congressman Curtis was saying as well, after fire seeding and after fire treatments is key. And the federal government is often slow in, in providing funding as well as resources and that getting seed on the ground and getting it at a time so that we can, you know, not have invasive cheatgrass or, or those catastrophic flooding events that happen after that hard baked soil has a hard rain, it's key. And so I think that we really do need to work on tools to get that together. And so I would say two things. One, Congress can fund. Congress can fund and, and incentivize those types of uh, pre-treatments and Congress can really help uh, those federal agencies become a little more um, reactive in a quicker way to those catastrophic burns. Yeah, good point. Time is of the essence uh, after a fire to get those those things done or or disaster follows. Uh, you don't have time for that, the months and months it takes to, to approve federal funding. So good points. Um, well, again, thanks. Uh, this is a really an important topic. Like I said, not just for the West, for the entire country. And I appreciate you guys joining today to, to talk about this, this issue. 
likely, uh, as we have in the past, we're going to continue facing this uh, issue going on into the future. All our communities are going to need the solutions that you have talked about. And uh, I want to thank you for thinking about these and continuing to work on these issues as we move forward. So before we close, I'll give you an opportunity. Either of you have any, any thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners? And John, I'll turn to, turn to you first. Well, this is a great time to give a shout out to the Western Caucus uh, uh, Congressman that you lead and the importance we've, we've brought up a number of times, right? The, the fact that some of our colleagues don't understand what we deal with in the West and and uh, thank you for your good work. I'll, I'll just use my uh, parting uh, moments to, to give a shout out to the caucus, to the members, you know, interestingly, uh, not all the members of the caucus live in the West. So we are, you know, there are members who realize the importance of what we do, but we've got a big uh, burden on our shoulders to educate the, the rest of, the, of Congress. Thank you for your work. Good. I appreciate that, John. And you're right. That's one of our main missions is to help elevate these issues and educate Congress uh, how important they are. Brian, any thoughts uh, from you? I will echo the thanks. Uh, I've been a big fan of uh, Western Caucus and all the great work that's being done there. I would also say this. Uh, I have uh, played on both sides, the federal side and the state side, and now I'm kind of in this weird academic world. <laughs> Uh, despite all that, uh, I have to say that I'm pretty optimistic when it comes to our ability to respond to these things. And we, I don't think we've done a great job in the past, but people are starting to wake up. People are seeing the need for active management, uh, and Congress has provided funding through the infrastructure bill and other parts to where we actually go out and we're actually be able to put the resources on the ground that have needed to be there for some time. So I just want to say thanks to you and your colleagues for, for understanding that. Uh, and for really giving those of us in the West a sense of optimism that we can tackle hard things. And uh, it's not always easy, but it's, but it's always uh, worth that fight. So thank you so much. Great. So Congressman John Curtis from Utah's third congressional district, Mr. Brian Steed, who's now executive director of the Janet Quinney Lawson Institute for Land, Water and Air at Utah State. Gentlemen, thank you very much for taking some time to talk about some really important issues. And I wanna thank our listeners for being with us again and look forward to talking with you soon on A Voice for Rural America.